as I looked at today's scripture from Galatians and looked at the entire context in which this scripture is offered, I found that underneath it there was a question being asked. And the question being asked is, how do you define church? Now, if we really had time to talk back and forth about it this morning, I have a feeling that there would be about as many different answers as there are people in the room. And in fact, there may be some folks who feel pretty strongly about what that definition should be. And in fact, some may feel so strongly about what that definition should be that we may find some people kind of moving on this side of the room and some people moving on this side of the room. We might find ourselves getting louder and louder as we try to offer that definition. And a strange thing would happen. In the midst of trying to define what church is, we'd end up undermining what church is because of the level of our rhetoric. And that's exactly what was happening in this scripture today. The Christian church was still new. It was still young. They were figuring out who they were and struggling with that. And what happened in that struggle is that the rhetoric got more and more heated. Some of them were taking parts of their faith before Christ, a pre-Christ definition, and saying, this is how we have always defined church. So let's take all of this, and then now let's take what Christ has given us and bring that together, and that's what church should be. And they got very heated up about what that would be like. One of the key issues was actually circumcision. Those who had come from a previous pre-Christ tradition saw circumcision as one of the rites of faith. So what was happening in this new church is that there were some who said that the new people coming into the church, if they were male, obviously, <laughs> needed to be circumcised. Well, you can imagine how that went over with some of the new folks coming into the church. And it became a big point of contention. And part of what was happening is, in that is that some of the leaders in the church would try to, con try to convince some of the newcomers that they needed to be circumcised. Now, some said no, and others went ahead and went along with it. And then those who got them to go along with it were boasting about it, saying, you know, I am really doing my job because I got these new folks to follow the rules. Now, Paul is seeing all the contention and all that's going on with this, and he is trying to get them back, back to what Christ really taught. What he saw was is that they were taking a fear-based legalistic religion and defining the church through that lens and trying to get everybody in line. So what Paul saw happening in the church in Galatia is that they defined church as a place of getting everybody in line, getting everybody to think alike, act alike, follow all the same rules, follow the same list. And Paul's trying to say it's not about a list at all. Rhetoric, argumentation, the context of which Paul writes is very similar, I think, to much of what we experience today. We live in a society and a culture where the argumentation and the rhetoric seems to be getting louder and louder. And people can no longer hear each other, much less the spirit, because of the level 
of debate. Turn on any talk radio station, and whether it is left-wing or right-wing, you're going to hear name-calling, argumentation. We live in a fractured society that calls for a vision that Paul is describing in our scripture today. But does this sound like the culture in which we live? Much has been written in recent years about the progressive coarsening of Western culture, especially in the United States. Rough handling of people, ideas, and affairs flourishes at all levels of social and political life. Radio talk shows and reality television thrive on conflict. Road ragers bedevil the highways. Political leaders demean one another. Church bodies are divided by hard-edged rhetoric. Where is the salve of restraint? Where is mature, thoughtful consideration? Where is gentleness in outlook and action? Patience, respect, listening, and gentleness seem to be increasingly endangered species of human interaction. To whom does the hard work of restoration belong, if not to the church of God? Hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm dreading 2008 and the campaign that has already begun. The name-calling and the mudslinging, it's already started! And chances are on your drive home today from church, someone's going to lay on their horn for a mistake that you probably didn't even make. The rhetoric, the noise. Somehow, community abuse has become acceptable. And yet, this scripture today gives us a different approach. One of my visions for resurrection is that we would be a community of gentle strength. That yes, we would have solid values. We would have courage. We would have character. Yet we would never stoop to the level of abusing those who abuse us. That we would be a voice of gentle strength. As I looked at the Scriptures for the coming weeks, what I saw was a call for us to become a community that lives that level of maturity that models what Jesus modeled. So my message is in the next several weeks we'll talk about this inner character, this vision of who we can be. My approach to this idea of gentle strength was tested just a few weeks ago when I went on PBS Channel 8 on a program called The Connection. And I knew going in after reading the bios of some of the folks who would be sitting across the table from me that most likely not only would this church come under attack, but that I would come under personal attack. I went into that asking for your prayers. I sent out an e-blast and, and asked for you to pray as I went into that meeting. And sure enough, I was accused of not even being a Christian by the person sitting across the table from me. And I felt a moment when I felt my tension beginning to rise. And I found that once I was hit, I wanted to hit back. But something inside of me through your prayers was stronger than the attack. And it said, it said, be Christ. Be Christ. 
So let's go back to that question. How do you define church? Let me say, it's not going to happen through a verbal description. It happens through action. And Paul describes that action in your scripture today. He says it quite simply at what is the very focus of the scripture. Paul says, bear each other's burdens. Restore each other. Carry each other. And that's what we saw embodied in that dance today. This idea of somehow moving from a defeated place, from a place where we can barely crawl, to being restored to a place of life and dancing. I won't try any of your moves. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to try. <laughs> Just remember what you saw embodied. Because that's the visual example that's being offered in this scripture today. Quit going over the checklist. Quit trying to make everyone like you because that beats people down. Instead, bear each other's burden and therefore your life will be a dance. A dance of gentle strength. Now when you hear the word gentle, what you hear inside may be the word weak. Well, my vision for us is not a vision of weakness. Hear gentleness as Paul actually defines it through this scripture today. In Galatians 6, verse 2, Paul counsels the church in Galatia, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul's counsel points to both the centrality and the challenge of gentleness for those who would follow the way of Christ. Gentleness is often narrowed in scope and diluted in strength by translation as meekness or weakness. Yet gentleness in biblical perspective encompasses wisdom, availability, and strength of character. This quiet, hopeful disposition helps to sustain Christian community against fracture and to encourage those who stumble. As such, gentleness takes its place among the essential virtues of the Christian life. We are called to a bold gentleness, a depth of character that will reverberate throughout this community, setting a different tone of who we're called to be as people. A church that's about restoring community, not tearing it down. We have a world that is deeply in need of restoration on all sorts of levels. A world that's in need of economic restoration as we look at the poor represented in so many countries. A world in need of health restoration. I know at conference this week, uh, as people came from all around the world, I, I, I heard stories about what's happening to GLBTQ people in Jamaica, and I heard about how the AIDS epidemic is continuing to spread, particularly in various parts of Africa. I heard about the economic disparity that is so real in many other MCCs throughout this world. And I remember there was a moment where I began to feel overwhelmed by it all, thinking, God, how can we ever bring restoration to a world where there is so much disparity and so much hurt and so much miscommunication and misunderstanding. And what came to me at that moment was I didn't have to do it all. 
Just the peace that God calls me to do. None of us can restore our entire community or our world. We would get overwhelmed. We can look at all that we're facing and say, I feel so insignificant in the face of this. And yet the reality is, when we listen to the voice of the Spirit and do our part, then every action we take will be significant. Insignificant people become significant when listening to the voice of the Spirit for the next action. I believe that if each one of us simply ask God to show us what we're called to do and then listen and do it, we will be that community of restoration. And the church will not be defined by some theological description, but rather will be defined by particular specific action lived out by a gentle and strong community. Let me give you one example of a person who listened to that voice and then began to restore community. The story you're going to hear is from a corporate executive from Xerox Corporation. A series of tragedies made me wake up and realize that I had to do something to improve the lives of children. At the time, I was an executive at Xerox. My spouse and I had already been taking kids into our home for many years. We had a simple policy in our house. Any child could bring home any other child at any time for any reason. We'd feed those children, clothe them, house them, give them whatever they needed. And children kept coming through our door, the numbers growing every year. Dozens and dozens of our kids went on to college, and several of them earned master's degrees. But some of them didn't fare so well. Some went to jail. Some were killed. Some killed themselves. I had to recognize that no matter how much we invested in those kids, we were not immune to feeling the pain of violence. We still buried children. That was a turning point for me. I was forced to see that there were bigger issues in the world than what my partner and I could fix, that our society's routine neglect of children on all levels wreaks enormous damage. There I was a learned, successful adult. I thought, if not me, then who? So I quit my job at Xerox and started the Urban Family Institute in my basement as a nonprofit organization aimed at changing the lives of children. So how do we define church? Not through some fear-based list, but like this person church was defined in this corporate executive's basement. Church is defined through every conversation that we have. Church is defined as we live out our callings, as we bear each other's burdens, as we go about the work of restoring. We define church through our actions and character and maturity and spirit. And it's not overwhelming if we simply listen to our call. Chances are, if you listen to that call, you're not going to end up founding a nonprofit organization. But each step you take may lead to something like that or 
whatever's unique to God's calling for you. Simply listen and follow, and it'll be powerful, and church will be defined. Bob Butler was a Vietnam War vet. He lost his legs due to a landmine explosion. He retired in Arizona and was in his wheelchair in his garage working one day when he heard screams coming from a neighbor's house. He immediately felt compelled to respond to the need that he couldn't see but he could hear. As he wheeled himself out of his garage and went in the direction of the screams, he hit an obstacle. The, the screams were coming from a neighbor's backyard and there was landscaping, cactus and all this stuff and, and he couldn't get his wheelchair through that. But something in him said not just to call 911 but to actually respond to that need at that moment. And so he pulled himself out of that wheelchair and began to crawl just using his upper body since he had no legs. He found himself crawling over cactus. And even though it was painful and it hurt, something in him said, I got to get there. I got to get there. He heard his call for that moment. When he made his way into the backyard, what he saw was a young mother standing over a pool screaming. He crawled to the edge of the pool and he looked down and what he saw in the bottom of the pool was a little girl looked about three years old who had sunk to the bottom of the pool but she had no arms. She couldn't make her way up to the surface. Without even thinking about it, he dove down into that pool, got to the bottom and using what tools he had, his arms, he grabbed her, he pulled her up. When he got her up to the surface and put her beside the edge of the pool, she wasn't breathing. She was already turning blue. He immediately began to offer CPR to her. And the whole time, he'd take a breath and he'd say, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. And he would offer more life into her. You're going to make it, you're going to make it. She began to cough and then breathe and her color began to come back. 911 was on the way. But he continued to just minister to her and to, and to, and to rub her, her throat and begin to bring her back to life. Saying, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You see, I was your arms and I was your lungs. And it's going to be okay. The mother at that point, once things had calmed down a little bit, said, how could you have been so sure it was going to be okay? And he said, well... I found myself taken back to 1965 when I hit that landmine in Vietnam. I was left dying in a field and I had no legs. But a little Vietnamese girl from a nearby village found me there and drugged me back into her village. She couldn't speak much English, but what she could say was, it's going to be okay. And she also said, let me be your legs. Let me be your legs. That's how we define church. We become each other's lungs or arms or legs or whatever the call of the moment may be. That's bearing each other's burdens. That's restoring. That's gentle strength. That's the call of our scripture today. God has given each one of us what we need to make up for what another person may not have. And when we take what you have and someone needs and bring it together, that's the definition of church. Let us be the body.
of Christ. Amen.